0: Five scores! Rick 5 We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick five Jerry
1: Gooden. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're
0: going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and
1: Newfoundland, And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas.
0: Welcome everyone, episode ninety five of the Squid and Ultimate Leap Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leeds fan. Joining me as always, my winger Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping?
1: Uh well it's very wet out there, Mike. And <laughs> Yeah. Here too. I, I, went, I just went out for a little bit of a little bit of a walk and I went about a half a block and I go, nah, this isn't gonna work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's yeah, that's unfortunate. It's been good, supposed to be like that for the next few days too. So we're inside. No, not down here.
1: Down here, we're supposed to be sunny tomorrow and nice. So awesome. Well,
0: we do have a good guest with us today to make time go by nicely. Our guy, he did play junior hockey with the Toronto Marlboros. He's an ex alum of Neil McNeil, my old school. Won a Memorial Cup in '67. Has been chosen by the Maple Leafs in the 1963 draft, of which we'll get into how things were much stranger in those days with the draft. Have a short stint with the Leafs. Spent most of his playing career at the Buffalo Sabres. With stops in at Vancouver, Atlanta, Philly, and Washington. Was a GM and senior VP for the Buffalo Sabres. Earned a law degree and is still active in that regard. Please welcome Jerry Meehan. He was my boss. How you keeping? What? P- he was P- my P- boss. <laughs> 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 That's, That's
2: interesting. I was just thinking getting ready for this. I thought about the uh, uh, the – Christmas Day, uh, I acquired Rick from the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll never forget, uh, I got a call from Bob Pulford um, just after lunch in my Italian in-law's large family home, and um, I told Bob, I said, well, yeah, we're going to do this deal, but let's wait until tomorrow because it is Christmas Day and we don't want to disturb people. That idea didn't go over very well. So <laughs> in those days, you could make trades on Christmas Day. You can't anymore. But that was our Christmas present from
1: Bob to the Sabres. Well, and to Rick. Well, rip. It, it, was, well it, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> um, I mean, I had to leave the day after Christmas. My, my wife's family went to town for the holidays, and I'm gone. And my wife left to sell the house and get the movers and everything. So anyway.
0: Didn't you have agents then? God, they didn't do that me. <laughs> anyway, like, thanks. Hey, you know what? We should stop right there, guys, because, you know, Rick, you're getting all kinds. Of, I don't know what's happening here, in squid but it's when you're talking, it's all muzzy.
1: Well, I don't know what it could be.
0: See, as soon as you talk, it goes all static-y.
1: It's
0: it's kind of weird, Because when Jerry and I are speaking... Oh, there's one there. I haven't seen anything on the mic, Mike. I don't know why we're getting all that static. Glenn, any ideas? I don't know why we're getting all that static. Glenn, any ideas? Is it better if I
1: take these off?
0: Ah, right, this thing is just a disaster. Oh right, this thing is just a
1: disaster.
0: Hey Mike, do you have a second device on? Uh maybe I'll turn this off turn this off. Does that help?
2: I'm going to try something
0: here, boys. Because we're getting all this. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Is that I better now?
2: That's better for me to hear, yeah. I put my Squid? headphones on
0: backwards. <laughs> How about you, Squid? No sound
1: no can't hear you uh i can hear and as long as, what do you mean you can't hear me at all no
0: i can okay you good now
1: yeah i i can hear fine and there's no static now
0: okay so i think we're good okay so now so glenn will just pick up where the next question all right all right so here we'll go with okay so jerry how are you staying active in the legal world these days well you know
2: it's interesting you ask that mike because before the so-called pandemic, I was spending a lot of time working with some of my former teammates, colleagues, et cetera, uh, developing an athlete benefit model that was focused on cross-border activities. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the Canadian athletes that go to work in the U.S. and the U.S. athletes and the European athletes that come to Canada and the U.S have multiple benefits that they're not aware of when they leave their career and reach a certain age. They have these benefits to claim, but don't know where they are and how to get them. And many people have a misconception about what obli- how many years you have to work in the United States to have certain benefits. And we clarified that for a lot of the guys. And I was working towards a more, more general compl- complex model to include... Cross border financial planning and immigration aspects and things like that. And then COVID hit. So it kind of took us, set us back a couple of years. And now just getting back into the swing of things really just kind of, kind of re reset my life and my career at a time when I'm not interested in really digging in on 60 hour weeks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know the sixty to seventy-hour work week is not for me. And I think you know, but doing what I would call ad hoc advisory consulting service in specific situations is probably where I want to be. But not going to the day-to-day practice again. It's it's changed. It's it's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of management structuring going on, and obviously you got to stay up to date on everything you touch your hands on. So. I'm just kind of resetting, and over the next few months, I'll figure out whether or not to get more busy, less busy, or just play golf at Rattlesnake Point with Rick and some of his friends.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. If you work all those hours, Jerry, it's going to interrupt your golf game.
2: <laughs> well, that and a few aches and pains certainly had an impact.
0: <laughs> hey, now, now, uh, just while we were on that, we were talking to before we had a little technical problem there, so we might to click back on. Uh, after a crime squid... Were you happy with his performance, Jerry, by the way? Because I understand the coach wasn't too thrilled with him.
2: Well, let's say this. Um, I took over over a team that had uh, an abundance, some might say an overabundance, of very young, undeveloped athletes who with little experience but plenty of talent and possible upside. And the mix that I had to work with was lacking one important element of a team that needs improvement and playoff contention, and that was veteran leadership. So among the players that I brought in to the team at that time in the early years, I was there taking as as the caretaker, I guess, as the manager, was to add two people uh, that gave great leadership during that transition time. One was Mark Napier, and the other was Rick Vive. And when you have those kinds of players who have been through the wars as veterans, um, showing the young players how to play, how to lead, and how to be responsive and how to compete, which is one of the biggest issues that young athletes need to learn is not just the skill level, but it's how to compete at the NHL level. And I think our team didn't have enough of that. And certainly Mark and Rick brought that uh, very, very, valuable element of knowing how to compete and be successful at the highest levels of sport
1: and i don't know what mike's talking about my coach didn't like me my my coach loved me does it was a sec the third coach i had there oh sorry sorry the wrong guy didn't yeah. like me
2: <laughs> 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 so it because, took three coaches to find
1: somebody to like you yeah well no ted sater was there when i got there and we yeah. got along fine yeah and and i didn't have a problem with ted or he didn't have a problem with me, nor did Duds. And Duds was there for three years, I think, or three and a half. Did a fantastic job. Uh, smart coach, good coach. Uh, uh, it was a little crazy at times in the dressing room, but, you know, I mean, that's Duds. And I think you got to take that with the good. And, and he was a very, very good coach. He, he was well prepared, and uh, the guys loved playing for him.
2: Yeah, Well, Rick uh, certainly went on to um, a long and continuing Mm -hmm. career in sports management above the coaching level and has probably developed a reputation as one of the top, if not the top player personnel guy in the game. So whatever he did at the coaching level, he has certainly been surpassed at his uh, management executive level.
0: Well, so, Jerry, let's go back here to the beginning and uh, where it all started for you. Uh, a couple of schools that are pretty well-known in the city of Toronto, Neil McNeil and St. Mike's. Talk about those years and moving up. Yeah. And then I want to get into, after that, we want to talk about a league that not a lot of people know enough about, the the Metro Junior League, obviously, that was formed sure. back. Yeah. Okay, so we're,
1: about- so we're talking about this school because you went there, right, Mike?
0: Well, of course.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> My dad <laughs> went well, to St. Mike's. Of course, we got to pull we'll that go. one out every now, then.
2: We've got enough time to, for this story, but um, when I was um, a 13-year-old grade 8 student in, uh, playing and living in Newmarket, I was encouraged by my principal to write the St. Mike's entrance exam. And even though we lived in Newmarket, my father worked in the city and All our rest of extended family is in the city of Toronto, so it seemed like a natural thing to do, and I wrote the exam and was accepted to the school, and and immediately began playing hockey at the Bantam level with St. Mike's. Um, I played uh, at St. Mike's for two years, and then the Leafs, which were the sponsoring agency of the Toronto St. Michael's majors at the time and operated their their development program through the high school, uh, switched their affiliation to Liam McNeil High School to start the Metro Junior A-League and to be the founding partner along with a few other teams of the Metro Junior A-League. And at that time, um, they talk about the midget draft and how I and other players were selected in the midget draft, but the reality was we were probably already under the domain of the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Montreal Canadiens or the Boston Bruins, as the case may be. Uh, this is long before collective bargaining and long before any free agency or any ability of players to, to have any mobility. And so I was offered a chance to go to, to, to Neil McNeil to continue on the path of development within the Leafs organization. Um, I played, I guess at that time it was Junior B uh, at Neil McNeil, and then um, had you know regular tastes of playing in the Metro Junior A league as a as a call up during injuries and so on. Mm-hmm. You'll remember Mike the Brampton Seven Ups and Unionville yep. Nob Hill Farms, and I could go on and on. But the Toronto Maple you guys, league, you guys
1: remember that I wouldn't.
2: Yeah, yeah you, well, yes, you wouldn't. <laughs> Especially when it,
1: since I was living in PEI during that time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I so got to tell you, up, before you go on, Jerry, I think they screwed up the date on that card. It said 1997-1998. Four. all the cards you showed up here. That
2: was when I returned to St. Mike's to run their junior team for a couple of years.
1: Oh, okay,
2: okay. That was from, that's, I think that was in one of the programs or a ticket for that yeah. game.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. well, that, that the makes memor- sense. <laughs> that makes <laughs> the memorabilia <laughs>
2: guy will know that story, I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Actually, I, I our firm had, we owned part of the team, uh, Gribbis McBurney through Gene McBurney. We owned 25%. Of course
2: you did. I remember that very well. And and cheat and I had an interesting uh, no, number of times together when he was aging. So yes. We, yes, of I course. recall that. Yeah, and, and he left agency to become very successful in the, in the investment world. So that's very interesting. Yeah, what a combination.
1: I really anyway, right. to make
2: a long story short, in '64, uh, the Marlboros and the St. Mike's or the Tim McNeil uh, group joined forces to go back into the Ontario Hockey League, and that team is legendary in the world of junior hockey because it won a Memorial Cup and probably the best team that ever lost the Memorial Cup was the Montreal Junior Canadiens. And if you look at the roster of either of those two teams, you'll see multiple, multiple NHL success stories.
0: Well, just for the listeners who don't understand what we're talking about with this Metro Junior A League, it was created in 1961 by leaf owner Stafford Smythe to rival the OHA because St. Mike's, who had won the Staten Memorial Cup in 1961, wanted to drop out because they felt it was becoming too professional for the the students as players and wanted too much travel. So this league was developed by Smythe to keep control of the players. So they made it all local and they had the games on the weekends. So that's where, but St. Mike's dropped out after one year, as Jerry pointed out, then Neil McNeil came in and all those other, but the competition was so one-sided and the Bruins wanted to be a part of it. So I had the Oshawa Generals put in and there was a young 14 year old that played in that league that went on to have a half decent career by the name of Bobby Orr. And you remember, you remember coming across him, Jerry, during that time. Well, I
2: remember Bobby had played against him in junior for a couple of years. I don't recall him at the Metro junior A level, but I do know that you're right on the money in that term. And that's a great story, but I'll Blair one up and grabbed him in uh Perry sound and got him to come to Oshawa for the Bruins. But yeah, I remember those days pretty well. And um, again, to go back to that 64 team with Montreal oh. and, and the Le- and the, and the Marlboros, it was uh, both were stacked with future stars. And I have, I got to play 12 or 13 games with that team, but, did have three more years with the Toronto Marlboros leading up to the Memorial Cup in 67. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, the interesting thing that I've been working a little bit on this whole idea of uh, athlete transition and preparing for the rest of their lives. And I often talk to people about what led me to become um, uh, interested in or engaged in law practice after I played. because obviously most players play at that level and they don't get a chance to complete or can even continue their education. You're playing three and four games a week or whatever is two or three games a week, traveling all over the place. Bear in mind that in those days, folks, uh, the Toronto or the Ontario Hockey League had eight teams, maybe 10. Every single team in the league had access to a university. So when I was at, at, uh, when I was, um, Transferred to Neil McNeil, my parents made sure that the, the Leafs were committed to continuing to pay for an education. So I was able to complete two years of undergrad degree at the University of Toronto okay. before I turned pro. So that led me to the thought that, well, my at that year before I got off the contract, I was going to apply for law school at the University of Toronto, and a bunch of my co Paul Laurent. Um, Grant Moore, a bunch of other uh, guys that I played with on the Marlboros had already uh, gone the same path to the law school. And I went to my first Leaf camp, and they thought enough of me to sign me to a pro contract. So I basically told told my wife's father, don't worry, I'll go back to school when I'm finished. Because they had no idea what a hockey player was. What do you mean, going to play hockey? It's a game. Get your education. (laughs) So anyway, that was a good thing, because then they had the program that gradually led to what currently exists in the Ontario Hockey League with their, their, their education uh, program for players that play in the league.
1: You know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty important thing, Jerry. I think you hit the, the nail right on the head. Like, I remember my son, uh, my youngest son, getting drafted. Uh, he made the U.S. Development Program in Ann Arbor because he's a dual citizen. He was born in Buffalo when I was playing there. But I got drafted by Sudbury, Mike Felino was a coach. I trusted Mike a hundred percent because I played with him, and he's a, is a wonderful person. Um, but anyway, we go up there, and they give him a sweater, and you know, the whole bit. So we're driving home, and my my son says to me, "Dad, do you think I'm a great player?" And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And I he said, "Well, do you think I'm a, a great player?" And I said, "No." I said, "I think you're." Very good player, but I said, if you mean like a superstar, no, I don't think you you are. And he said, good. Then I'm going to go to the U.S. program because I don't think as a 16-year-old I'm going to play very much in Sudbury, if at all. And he he went there, got a full ride to Miami, Ohio, finished his education, and the rest is history. And then he great, went on great, and played pro yeah. hockey.
2: Well, very wise young man. Obviously, you raised him Well, you enjoy raised them well.
1: Yeah, well, and guess what, Jerry? Yesterday was our 41st wedding anniversary. Boy, oh, boy. Well.
0: She's a strong woman.
1: To,
2: to, all, to all of us who have gone that long and longer, congratulations. Yeah, That's you know, lovely wife.
0: I called yeah. her
1: on my way back from the golf course to ask her if I, she wanted me to pick her up something. If, and uh, uh, I said, happy anniversary. And she said, happy anniversary to you, husband. I don't know how you... Kept me this long, and I said. I think it might should be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: now,
2: congratulations.
0: Hey, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the best you guys, Squid um, Jerry. I want to talk a little bit about that '66, '67 Marley team. Very special team, Moral Cup champion. You guys weren't one of the front runners most of the season, but again, maybe just explain. What you guys went through. This wasn't like in today, where it's a four-game round-robin tournament at the end of the year. You guys played, I think, 26 games to win that cup from yep. playoff to finish. Like it's a grind. And but you guys talk a little bit about that year and some of the guys you played with. That was a pretty loaded team.
2: Well, we had a lot of uh, we had an interesting mix of, of players. We had players that were definitely going to play pro hockey. Mike Pellick, Brian Glenny. Uh, Jim McKenney, I think, had already moved on. Brad Park. Uh, Brad Park. Um, trying to thank myself. Um, it was also a real strong component of athletic and academically oriented guys. And I saw a lot of them at a recent reunion that Paul Pascal put together a couple of years ago. And many of them have gone on to careers in education and teaching. I think of Britt Selby right away, although he had already moved on from that team. So it was an interesting mix of players that were going to definitely go to pro hockey, and the rest were sensible enough to know that they probably weren't going to be uh, long-term successful pros. Someone to the I think Tom Martin spent some years in the yep. in WHA, and John Wright had a, had a short career in the NHL and the WHA. I think. But um, it was really an interesting mix. I I think the difference between 67 and 64 was really that differentiation between a team loaded with certain certain to be high-level NHL players and a mix of players at those two or three levels. But what we had was good chemistry. Uh, I think the right mix of old and young. And there was one other aspect that worked in our favor. That was the year that the Western Hockey League had been outlawed. So our opponents in the Mm. Memorial Cup were the Port Arthur Mars, which was a team that won the Western Canada Championship because the WH Crissons Hockey League had become uh, an outlaw league, according to Hockey Canada or whatever they called it in those days. But that does not diminish the accomplishment because you're right. We played two playoff series in uh, the Ontario League. We played a playoff series against the Quebec Eastern Canada champions, Tetford Mines, which, by the way, had names like Gilbert Perreault, uh, Reggie Houle, Jean, uh, Mark Tardif, and a whole list of players would go on to become the Montreal Junior Canadian champions of a year or two later. And then, obviously, most went on to great careers as pros. So that was kind of what I thought of. But I would say you're right. Whatever number we played, it was... You know, the, the, we played, I think, we had Niagara Falls, and I've heard it, maybe it was Kitchener Rangers in the semis and the finals. And they were really good teams, if you look at their rosters. Um, yep. They were terrific teams. And so we, we managed to get through on the strength of determination, enthusiasm, um, good goaltending, good team defense, and uh, lots of goodwill internally in the locker room.
1: Very. Uh, sure, Talk. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, talk about the game back then, what it was like. Uh, like you said, the draft was really not a, a draft. Players were signed uh, or put on teams, and like you said, Boston went and grabbed Bobby Orr, got him to Oshawa. And, of course, the, po- the players had no power, no free agency, no nothing. Uh, so it's playing because... It was like that right up until probably the early 90s, I believe. It's interesting Uh,
2: you ask that question, Rick, because right now I'm teaching courses at the University of Buffalo Law School and and Data and Computer Science School. And the themes of the program that we're trying to uh, deliver is, what do you need to know to be a successful employee in the sports world as a an athlete transitioning transitioning from comp, from competition to a regular life. Um, one of the big things that I like to rely on is, you know, what I call the how it was, how it is now, and how it could be or should be in the future. And how it was was a travesty of uneven, unequal bargaining power. The biggest problem was the players didn't even know it was unequal. Uh because the system was so established and endemic, as you as Mike obviously knows as a with his history and knowledge, is that the players were just happy to get a chance. I mean, nobody ever questioned whether what you sent got sent to the minors. So just looking at Larry Hillman's rest in just in peace, his uh just to remind myself of his career, he played twenty-two seasons of pro hockey, almost all of it divided between the minors and the and the NHL or the WHA. And this is the kind of thing that what happened in those days, players who held out were, were basically had a reputation as problem players. And it wasn't unusual for players to be, I won't use any pejoratives, but to be sent to positions where they couldn't call on anybody for help. And, and nobody would step out of line and, and, and um, fight the good fight for them to get back into the proper circumstances. The balance changed dramatically when Al Eagleson took over the union. And interestingly enough for this audience, I was, I was uh, kind of a, uh, an extra player on the Leafs in 1968. When there was a meeting, uh, we had a team bowling event at Plantation Bowl in Etobicoke. <laughs> and at that team meeting, Al Eagleson showed up, and I forget who it was. That it might have been Bob Pulford, it might have been maybe Mike Walton. I'm not sure, but there was this core group of players who were saying, "We got to get this guy in here, uh, and we got to hear him." And and Al was obviously we all know what Al did. He was the first um, lawyer agent uh, to confront the establishment, but he confronted the establishment in a way that, with gentle persuasion and cooperation, he was able to move the players' rights along and ultimately obtained three really important things that exist today. One was a medical plan that you could count on for your family. The second was something that everybody forgets that he was the o- that was the only league that had the guaranteed contracts. Mm-hmm. Once you signed an NHL contract and once you got past a certain number of games played, you could not be sent to the minors without waivers and even if you were you had to be paid your NHL salary. And the third was a real improvement in the pension plan. And as we all know, things happened uh, in a way that didn't go as well for Al and the game as maybe it might have after those early games. But without Al, this probably wouldn't have happened. And then the next step was the the emergence of the acceptance of, of agents. Uh, once agents were allowed to actively um, exist within the NHL structure, um, it changed everything dramatically. And that would have been... Probably mid-70s was the time when players almost universally moved on from their own individual negotiations into uh, taking on lawyer agents or agents as their representatives. And it gave them the ability to not have to say no to a general manager. The player could now say, talk to my agent, I can't talk to you about this. And that, that drove the managers nuts. Because in the old days, they were always you, able to to coerce, cajole, persuade, and threaten yeah. players with with negative outcomes. And as a guy, I often think I talked to Paul Pascal, Wouldn't it be interesting for guys, a guy like me who played in this six team league as a as a prospect, and have been through all of these changes in the game, both as a player, a manager, and a lawyer, how this kind of perspective filtered through me. Is easier is I think it's a little easier to understand than it might be if people just wanted to figure out well, how did it all happen. But basically, this whole idea that players have rights and the and the owners have obligations was put into balance. And the most probably the most important improvement in the game in that regard was salary disclosure. Oh, uh, when salary plan. disclosure came along in, I think about 94, 95, Rick, maybe it was 93, yeah. 94, that yeah. the owners fought that tooth and nail for years. Even after they began to, they accepted collective bargaining and they accepted agents and they accepted the changes as inevitable. They fought salary disclosure. But what salary disclosure has turned out to be is the best thing that ever happened for both players and management because it allowed both sides to view their job as negotiators Mm -hmm. Um, from the point of view of uh, equal footing or fair fair equitable balance between the strengths and weaknesses of the argument combined with an arbitration system that allows people to know that at least they're able to compare their ability to somebody else within a, a structured legal process has been a dramatic improvement so And with the salary cap, because we now have a maximum amount that the players can earn on a particular team, it it imposed even more discipline, like it or not, on the system. The only
1: thing now is there aren't as many trades as there used to be in the old days. <laughs> and if you win a Stanley Cup, you lose three or four good players every year. So Exactly. And, <laughs> it's kind of and, how and, it works. But it's funny yeah. you bring that up, Jerry, because I remember, I think it was 87- or 88, I was on the uh, the board of, of the player Association. And we were in Florida negotiating a new CBA. And of course, you know, Al would always go and negotiate. You know, years later, you see the new guys, whoever was the head of the player Association, going in with five or six players. And then I started looking at that thinking, well, like, we never went in with him. And one of the big things we wanted that year was salary disclosure. Mm-hmm. and we didn't get it mm-hmm. and it didn't come in until about like you said 94 I think right around that time and it, it made a big big impact on the players salaries and the one thing I love about the game today is how much power the players have compared to what they did before that I mean it's unbelievable it's great I think it's great for the game that the players have the power that they do
2: well the the the, the... The opportunity for an athlete who has a limited time span and a limited career means he has to maximum earnings in a very short period of time, and even shorter through injury or lack of opportunity or whatever might happen. So, this whole idea of giving the giving the 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 system the kind of structure that's been created as being, as I say, the best thing that could possibly have happened to ensure equal and fair balance between the power of the owners and the needs and expectations of the players.
0: Now, Jerry, what I want to do is I want to go back to you, just when you broke into the league. And again, this is another thing. How were the players treating you when you arrived? Now, they would have been aware of you because you obviously all played in the same building. But with only 120 jobs in National Hockey at that time, all those expansion was coming in. We've had stories told to us that the boys weren't very friendly because they'd either be taking their job or one of their buddies' jobs, and it was a very tight little group of guys. So how was your whole experience coming in on that? Was it a little bit of an eye-opener for you? Um,
2: We were put in our place. Um, I don't say we were – I was – I mean, as a young prospect who was trying to break into a regular spot, um, I kind of knew my place as well. I was respectful, and I didn't push ahead of where I should have pushed into areas I didn't belong. But the idea that um, the players were not helpful, I think, is a little bit uh, related to human nature and the fear for their own jobs. Yes, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, especially players who were not at the highest level of accomplishment. You know, guys like Dave Keon, guys like uh, Tim Horton, they were you know, they were respectable, respectable, respectful, but a little distant. I, I think the you know, the, the guy that I really gravitated to as a helpful guy was George Armstrong. Um, the chief was really the, the universal hockey player. He could play up the lineup. He could down the, play down the lineup. He was a leader. He was a spokesman, and he was a wise man. And, and I thought he was just terrific for the young guys. He had no fear of anybody because he knew he had a special skill, which was he could do anything on the ice you want, asked him to do. Mm-hmm. Score, check, be scrappy, get the puck out of your own end, and, and and be as defensively responsible as possible. And I learned a lot of that from George. But, you know, it was just the nature of the time, I think, you make yeah, the and like that people – Nobody was cr- cruel or un- unkind or impolite. It was just, you know, this guy's pretty good. He might be after my job. I don't have to help him along. <laughs> Maybe it was because I played center and George was a right winger. He, 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 I don't think he ever dabbled into the middle of the ice as a center. So.
0: Now, how about Punch? How was the relationship with Punch in you? And uh, and to take him one step further, a couple of years later, he'd have you in Buffalo.
2: Yeah, he was uh, he, he was really good. Um you know, people. I, I would think people that that remember Punch, who played for him, think of two things. One is is the irascible, you know, um, uh, intense, competitive guy. Um, the other is the side that the public and most players never saw. He was very much concerned about the about his players' welfare, and I'll never forget things he did for me when I was buying a house, um, my first stop when, when we first got to Toronto and I'd grown up there and we were planning on Toronto being our, our, our home forever. Um, even if I played elsewhere, um, I told, I went to punch and I said, uh, um, you know, I need a little help. I you don't have enough cash for this down payment. Do you know anybody that can help me? any he, he arranged for me to, to have get special financing for for my house through a local bank, which nobody knew. And but he didn't want anybody any publicity. He didn't want anybody to know. And it was just a matter of him taking care of his players. What Punch was well known for was his opposition to an agent. And Punch was very much a man about loyalty. Uh, and and he felt that when players were relying on agents, that meant they no longer trusted him. And I think he took it a little more personally and professionally personally than he might have today, which is it's something that is is a given. But he was uh, he really cared for his players, and he 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 it was a real uh, his knowledge of the game and how he put teams together was pretty special and i think of some of those sabers teams he put together in the early years uh, out of uh, you know a, a band of misfits and castoffs and and maybe maybe will make it guys he he was a marvelous uh, team builder obviously stanley cups proved that but yeah um, yeah he was uh, he was i i think think he's the kind of guy that gave a lot of guys a chance that he would never have been recognized for or would never admit but he was pretty solid uh, supporter of the players in the background under the circumstances that I mentioned. Once an agent showed up,
1: that was it.
0: Well, Squid, you got nothing but good things to say about him?
1: Well, he traded for me and <laughs> gave me the opportunity to play in Toronto with the Maple Leafs. I can't say anything other than it was a great experience playing there and, and I was glad I got traded there, but you'd have a tough time Convincing most of the players that played with me during that time uh, that he he was a good person because everybody saw him as evil when, when Harold brought him back. And I think that was unfair uh, at that time because, I mean, I, he probably never asked to come back. Harold just figured, oh, I'll bring Punch back. He'll straighten things out here. And and then, you know, he got in an argument with Daryl Sittler, and then the rest is history. Uh, but I, I think that. I think the way that the players and, and people talked about him, I, I thought was unfair. Because I had great conversations with Punch. Uh, he called me up there a couple of times, and we just sat and talked. He said, everything okay? And, and uh, you know, he said, just keep your nose clean, and, and everything will be fine. And, well, when
2: you think of it, the, the the Ballard years in Toronto were not marked by... A lot of goodwill in any direction.
0: You well, thats an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, so Jerry, how about this? We can we could call this one the the, the curse of Punch as a Saber, who's haunted the Maple Leafs since the first time they ever played at Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, you guys coming in as a team, you'd be aware of the history. You'd be aware of a lot of what had been going on behind the scenes. How motivated were you guys? Were the players talking about that plane in Toronto, just making sure we beat these guys? <laughs> well, uh,
2: there was a lot of that. There was, uh, there was, there was a sense that we were doing punch solid by per- performing at a level that ensured he would go back to his hometown or his where his greatness was established without without an embarrassing loss at least a competitive game, and and we did have a competitive game. I think I recall Roger Scrozier being pretty good in the net, too. But the idea that um, we, we might have caught them a little bit by surprise, um, we might have got a few bounces, but I think we beat them 7-4 to four or whatever the score was the first time back. And I was lucky enough to be a two-goal scorer in that game, as I believe. And And I think we did it more than once. Uh, going back into Maple Leaf Gardens, and it was a fair amount of Toronto boys, you know, I often thought Rick could probably answer this question better than I, but Toronto might be the hardest home arena in the league to play in because everybody has a relative or friend or somebody in the, Tor- in the Toronto area that can't wait to see their son, their cousin, or somebody come back and play in Maple Leaf Gardens. So every team that came into the gardens in those days was fully motivated to do a good job, not to mention the fact it was Hockey Night in Canada usually. So I, yeah, I think they no. were operating under that usual little bit of the high level of motivation for all teams, but we had a special motivation then, and it worked out for us very well and for Punch.
1: Well, I think I think people in Buffalo, the players in Buffalo, they always have that because I think people think of uh, Buffalo as being inferior and I mean the city, the team, and everything, to Toronto. And I think I think that's kind of a common thing. So when the Sabres come into Toronto, they want to prove that, hey, we're not inferior to you idiots up here. We're yeah. just as good as you. And I got to tell you, Buffalo is a pretty damn good place to live too, as Jerry would say as well, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, when we first came here, boy, 1970. Um, In those days, Buffalo and Toronto, the only thing separated them generally in culture and attitude was the Peace Bridge or the Rainbow Bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't feel all that different in Buffalo when we came down here the first time and still don't. Uh, It's so close to Toronto and interesting that Canada, Ontario and Toronto, it's interesting, many, many people in, in the Buffalo area are descendants of people who came from Canada to the U.S. for employment. It's, it's remarkable how many people you meet. You say, "Oh, my grandmother's from Perry Sound or my uncle was from, from uh, Welland mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah. you're right. Um, this is a like every place is a special place. Toronto is a special t- place in its neighborhoods, but it's a big monolith when you look at the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we grew up in Etobicoke and um, uh, that in la- our later teen years and that seemed to be our community even though you called it Toronto. That's where that, the personal culture was. But, yeah, it, Buffalo is uh, remarkable. in the city of, its, city of its size supports a major league NFL and a major league NHL product, as well as multiple NCAA programs and all the different sports activities here. It's quite a remarkable sports town.
0: Well, I was going to say to you, Jerry, just maybe you guys are kind of touched on it already. Life as a sabre back in those days with the new team and a lot of excitement and punch and all that going on around and it. it must have been pretty good walking around, especially coming from a city you did, even though it's a couple hours up the road. The hockey environment you went from, you go to Buffalo, it must have been a little bit surprising that they took so much to the
1: team, or was it? Okay, Mike, it was a couple of hours when, back then, now it's about four hours days.
2: <laughs> <laughs> And two You're of them right. at the bridge.
1: <laughs> You're right. You're right.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. Those those days, most of the players were getting their first real chance to be regular NHLers or were just on the last stages of their career. There's a great picture of Tim Horton in the background, Yvonne Kornoway yeah. eh, as well, and um, And the players were pretty high-level motivated to do a good job. But the the team had had some history in hockey that was really well established. The Buffalo Bisons had been in in the American Hockey League for many, many years. And the Sabres, for a small city on the border, even had what might be considered almost a major league ice rink facility. The old odds sat, I think, or you could put 11,000 people in it at a time when some of the Maple, some of the stadiums and arenas in the league were 12, 13, 14,000 capacities. So it wasn't that far off. And with its renovation, it went close to 16,000 the next year. But um, I think the fans were ready for a pro team. They already had the Bills. Uh, they were looking forward to the Buffalo Braves coming into town on an exp- as an expansion team. So the Sabres were a welcome addition as well. And I think... People considered it something they should be entitled to because of their commitment to hockey through the Bisons all those years. And of course, having, you know, prominent citizens like the Knox brothers and Fred Hunt, who was the first assistant general manager to punch, had spent many years as managing the Bisons, gave it a lot of impetus to come into the league with a capable um, organization.
0: Um, You became captain of the Sabres. How did you find out and were you a little surprised when you were announced as captain?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, when we we were at a stage when, you know, I was probably 24, whatever the age was, 25, which I thought was pretty young to be a captain, and I'd only had, maybe close to two seasons experience in the league. So it was a bit of a surprise, but it was, the team had suddenly gone to a very young model. The first year of the team had been loaded, not loaded, but the, the, the roster had plenty of veteran players, Donnie uh, Marshall, uh, Phil Goyette, Floyd Smith, uh, you know, a few others, but then we became much younger and much more prospect or developing, developing oriented. And I always thought, the natural captain for the Sabres should have been Gilbert Perrault, but he was only a second-year player, and he wouldn't have been ready for that. And I'd had some assistant captain and captain experience in junior hockey when when Punch was watching every Marlboros practice at 4.30 in the afternoon at the Gardens. And so I think, you know, I and I had some, some other qualities, I guess, that made some sense to the leadership. But, yeah, I was surprised and proud of it. Um, and certainly, uh, something I had to grow into for sure.
1: Well, that's kind of, that's strange, that story, because I went through the exact same thing in Toronto, Jerry, uh, 22 years old, not 24, 25. And basically Harold came up to me and said, you're the captain. He didn't ask me or they didn't call me right. in the office and say, Do you think you're ready to be the captain? He just said, you're our captain. And at that point, I, I said to myself, well, I don't think I'm ready, but if I say no to Harold, yeah. he's probably going to move me out of town. <laughs> so I took it, and it took me a couple of years to really, you know, learn how to play that role. And it wasn't until I was about 24 that I felt a lot more comfortable in that role.
2: Well, you know, you made, you, you I didn't completely finish answering Mike's question, too, because like you... Punch didn't tell me, um, what do you think about being captain, um, are you, do you think you're ready, or he didn't even say, let's sit down, have a coffee and talk about team leadership, which is what I would have done today. As a manager, I would have sat down with two or three candidates, each with a chance. There's, there's a the boss. Me. Happy anniversary. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Once well she's again. She's just dropping off my coffee for me. So. <laughs>
2: What a nice, what a nice uh, spouse, that's great. So he didn't ask and I didn't uh, object. I I just didn't, I was just so happy, surprised, proud. Obviously, if somebody thinks enough of you to do that, you don't, you don't say no, which is obviously what you did.
1: Well, Yeah, I mean, I was happy. I thought it was great that I was asked or told, but at the same time (laughs) I had some reluctance because I was so young and we had an older team at the time and i thought holy cow this is not going to be easy but (laughs) i think i can i I think i can get through it and sure enough i did uh things all worked out pretty good
0: well jerry you must have done something right because you know i I, you know we just we only have so much time to talk to me so much to talk about but 1979 you retire you start. You go back to school, so you go from a dressing room to a classroom. You get through that. You discipline yourself. Then you start practicing on sports and corporate, and you're across the board, and you're back all of a sudden with the Sabres, which is, I think believe, where you really wanted to go. Um, you move up the ranks and become GM. How did that all come about? Again, was this not a little bit of a surprise being thrown at you when it officially happened? Yeah,
2: um, well, I, the surprise was that Scotty was fired, really. I mean – he hired me as assistant, when I say he hired me, I was hired by the Sabres uh, after two years of law practice in the firm um, as assistant general manager and associate legal counsel, which is fairly common these days in the game because often you find these assistant GMs are are lawyers and in some cases, ex-players. And so it's a natural combination if somebody come in and do legal work for the organization, which saves them on legal bills from their regular law firm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and have and use their hockey knowledge and expertise within the hockey department to the assist the general manager. And that was my role. Scotty was great. He turned over a lot of the administrative functioning to me because he was always, um, you know, intense on the operations or the team operations at the ice level. So I managed most of the scouting activities, develop and. And uh, spent a lot of time with the Rochester folks on the miners. and uh, and and you know S- Scotty, um, as I said, I am you know when when he was when he was let go or whatever the word is, uh, I was brought in to the Knox's office just a minute or two before they told him, and he told me that I what was happening just so I wouldn't be caught by surprise. And then they talked to Scotty. And then I took a powder out of shock and went wandering around somewhere. But the idea that he would, uh, Scotty Bowman would be terminated, I just didn't occur to me as a possibility. So, yes, I was very surprised. But the reality is, is that Scotty gave me the opportunity to learn enough on the job in the two years that I was there working for him, that I was able to move basically seamlessly into the next stage of the career.
0: Well, when you ended up in that chair, what was the toughest adjustment on that side of the desk? I mean, because now you're not only controlling paychecks, but careers. So there must have been a lot of stress or unknown stress that came with the job that maybe also caught caught you a little bit unaware. Or did it?
2: Well, no, well um, it's an interesting question. It's something that I think requires a little bit of reflection. But, you know, at first thought, athletes are kind of – a special breed of people. And I say this because more not because of it's an impression, because in my recent work through the university, I've been studying these distinctions between athletes and other people who are in mm-hmm. other careers. And athletes have a set of characteristics that are rare to find. And people who reach the ultimate career levels in their profession, whatever they meet, bring to it, what they do, and those are the reasons why they get there. There are certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. And probably the first one is competitiveness. Competitiveness fed by beating a challenge. And and whether it's making the team, scoring a goal, making a breakaway, organizing for an exam, you have to have- Organizing a
1: team party.
2: Exactly. (laughs) These things are all part of of what takes to be a, a good professional, and, and studies have been made that show what athletes are good at, and if you can move them to positions that they're good at, after based upon their characteristics, they will be a success. So I was I was I was just ready for it because I was just okay. It's a challenge. Um, I'm tra- the biggest thing is I knew I was trained for it. Yeah, uh, Had I not been trained for it, I would have been a very intimidated for sure. But I'd spent, I had law school, I'd played 12, 15, 13 years of pro hockey, 10 in the NHL. Uh, I had been to law school, I had worked as a lawyer, and I'd worked, I'd basically, it was, a, it was, preparation was complete, I was ready. And I was confident enough that I wouldn't mess it up, that I, wasn't too intimidated by it, but it it it, was, it doesn't make it sound like it was easy. No, it was total readjustment and thinking because it goes from being reporting to the man responsible to being ultimately responsible, and it takes it takes a lot of of um, uh, discipline, character, and commitment to be responsible for basically fifty hockey players and other thirty or forty people on your staff. And working within a league team structure that has all kinds of nuances.
1: Jerry, so studying that, you know, all that stuff you're talking about, I mean, I'm not saying you take a, 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 an athlete and put him in uh, medical school and he's going to succeed or anything like that. But uh, in those studies, what, like, uh, did you find that there, w- there wasn't a whole lot that, that, uh, uh, a strong, good athlete could accomplish away from the, the field or the, or the rank? Well, let's just turn it around
2: a bit, Rick, and say there wasn't a lot of opportunity identified for the athlete based upon his special knowledge and skills to do something else. Athletes would become, they'd own a bar and lose money they partner with a restaurant and then, or they do personal appearances and then hope to get by on a hundred dollars a night and speaking engagements, uh, or they would, they're really well-to-do ones would play golf and do other things because they're bored. Uh, I think what we're trying to do and the world is trying to do now is recognize, and if hopefully the leagues and the players associations are recognized and I believe they are, that, that the athletes bring a special, um, contribution to society while they're playing and, but society shouldn't abandon them at the end of uh, their short careers and say, okay, you're on your own for the next 60 years. When you think of it, mm-hmm. Rick, I don't know what your retirement age was. I'm guessing mid 30, early to mid thirties, mm-hmm. but you got another 50 plus years to live. And everybody else that came out in our era, your era and my era had, had no direct, um, platform to jump onto that smooth the role. And there's three elements of the transition. There's a psychological transition, which is really huge. And nobody mm-hmm. really understands that except the player who went through it. It's much like a military guy coming out of the military and uh, suffering from PTSD. Um, and the other thing is, what do I do now? Well, you need education and skills training. And the third thing you need is a place that that skills training can be transferred to for meaningful employment, something that you're good at and something that you like and something that's useful. So in that vein, that is beginning to be seen in the sports world now. And it's just at the beginning and it's just about that leagues and teams are starting to recognize that you can't just use up an athlete's talent and throw them in the dust heap of society at the end of his career. And remember that most people think all athletes are like Revive, you know, big time scorers, team captains, leaders, what do they need help for? There's a natural disdain maybe a little bit towards those players because it's like, what do they look begging for help for? Well, if you look at the demographics of sports and hockey today, the top paid players represent about 20% of the leagues. In terms of the amount of money that make to live the rest of their lives, and at varying degrees, it tumbles down to the guys yep. that earn minimum wages for the for 10 years on their career, and they get out of it, and they're going they're going to go to they're not going to medical school unless they had their undergrad degree already completed. So it, it's a huge challenge and something that I hope we can bring to a um, maturity that becomes systemic in the business.
0: I was gonna ask you Jerry about some of the, you bought some pretty big names into Buffalo during your period. Pierre Turgeon is an example who we had on the show and we believe should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And absolutely, I don't understand yeah. why he's not. Yeah, uh, You know, Howard Horacek, Pat LaFontaine, Dominic Hasek. But the one I, there's two I'd like to talk about. One, McGilney. The defection, again, for the listeners, the stuff that was going on back in the day that people just don't relate to now, his defection, how did that all come about? And how you were a big role, obviously, in that. How did it all unfold?
2: Well, um, Alex was probably at 15 or 16 the best hockey player in the world. And nobody really knew it until about he turned to be about 16 or 17 when he started playing on the international stage. But he was spirited away from his family when he was about 14 and moved to the Red Army Academy, which is the Academy of playing hockey professionally. and um, he was a lieutenant in the army while he developed as a hockey player. Uh, in the 1988 draft, um, I had two extra an extra pick in the fifth round. And in those days, you could not pick players who were 18 and 19, except in the first three rounds, unless they had played a certain number of games at a level content that was considered equal to pro hockey, the mm-hmm. Olympics, uh, an elite league in a foreign country, things like that. Because he'd been an Olympian and on the national team, he was eligible to be picked in the later rounds. But adding to that was the fact that um, nobody was drafting Russian athletes in those days, for the obvious reason that everybody believed that he would be um, uh, not available forever, like like Theresevich, like the old the players that had no not yet come to the the league. Nobody thought he would come, so why waste the draft pick? Well, I I didn't think it would be a waste of a draft pick because. Uh, we already had a, a, a fifth round pick to use for whatever we thought might be the appropriate player, and I just told my staff, and we've we've been over this in meetings for a prior year. And Alex was probably in that draft in the top five players, if not the best, if he was if he was properly ranked by Central Scouting. Uh, but he he was he was basically eligible, but not considered available. So I just decided in the fifth round that we're going to use the extra pick and and i said to the guys i said look this russian thing's not going to last forever they've been fighting to get out of their country to play hockey in north america for years and sooner or later it's going to happen and once it does we'll have the best player in the world to put on our roster so it was it was a it was a challenge to do because it was considered to be a risk of a lost draft pick but that didn't concern me because i'd made a trade for an extra pick and we used it and obviously it led to the events that happened the following summer in '89, when um, I got a Don Luce and Rudy Migay had gone to the World Junior Championships in Alaska uh, that summer before uh, the summer the, the Christmas time of '88, and they had met with Alex and said hi how are and they gave him the card and said, "Whenever you're ready, we're here." And they came home and nothing came of that and. About three months later, um, in May, I was licking my wounds over a first round exit and got a call from Don Lucy. He said somebody had called him and said that Alex was interested in, nobody used the word defecting, but maybe coming out or coming over.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so we jumped on a plane that morning and went to Stockholm where the world championships had just uh, completed. But interestingly enough, the background is something that hasn't been talked much about, but... I had to arrange multiple activities before I left with the State Department, the immigration people, the government, the League, the League Security, and all this stuff under a cloak of absolute secrecy, because we only had three days to get him out before the world would know. And if anything broke in the press, um, it would have been a disaster, and he would have been arrested and probably sent to jail if he had got caught with that intention. So um, we had, I, I had put all the, the background in place and Craig Ramsey, uh, my one of my assistants at the time was was kind of coordinating the back end back in Buffalo while Don Luce and I went over there. And it, it went, I mean, I don't know if people may have seen that defection thing we did with Sportsnet a few years ago, but basically we met him in Stockholm. Um, I told him what the risks of him um, doing and what that was no going back. And if he was decided to go, he better make the decision now. And he he went home that night and um, that he went back to his residence with his team and was, came back the night later that night, saying, "Let's let's talk again." And that night um, we met him and um, he said, "It's time I'll go." Uh, that was the cue to jump in the car and disappear into the hinterland of Sweden, <laughs> while. I made arrangements at the embassy to get his, uh, get him the proper documents. And that took a couple of days. So we spent a couple of days kind of doing uh, the disappearing act. Mm-hmm. And then after we got all the documents back, and most of this was done, anything we had to do officially, I did kind of in the dark of the night after the embassy was closed to avoid any suspicion or anybody paying attention. And that was all arranged through back office. In particular, Ben Farrow, the district director at the time, was the terrific assistant for us as well. And we were lucky enough to get, you know, we got the first we got the first flight out of um, Stockholm before the, air, the airport had barely opened, and so we got through the security. Um, people pretty fast jumped on the plane, and we were in New York City the next day. So uh, it, it was a, a challenging harrowing, and I'm glad I was younger then. and. <laughs> and and, and, fear, and fearless, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, wow. Jimmy DeVolano went through the same thing with uh, Fedorov, and when he got him, he went and spoke to the owner, and he used a fourth-round pick, and he said, look, this kid at 18, even if it's to your way of thinking, Jerry, that 10 years from now, he'll be 28, and will still have one of the best players in the world. Yeah, and What's right. the risk? Yeah. So he got him. Mm-hmm. The next year, he tried to take Buray. But that rule you talked about with the international games, they wouldn't allow it to go through. But Pat Quinn somehow found an extra game that he played through some digging. I know that story very well. That was one of the
1: the biggest. The one thing I can tell you about Alex is I've been asked so many times, like, who is the best player you ever played with or against? And I will say that every single time I get asked that question, his name is the one I say. I never saw a guy at a, at a high speed could do the things that, that Alex could do. Uh, it was it was just incredible to watch him in practice and in games. And, you know, he put it through a guy's stick three or four times. The next thing you knew, he's around the defenseman, and he was putting it in the net. And it was like, how did he do that? <laughs> it's like,
2: well, you know, no. there's another player um, um, of significant stature that I had lunch with about a month and a half ago named uh, Pat LaFontaine. Yeah. And Pat and I were talking about this at lunch, and he said, you know, Jerry, people ask me who the best player I've ever played with, and they think I'd say I'd say Bossy or Trotchy or Potten, and he said it was Alex McGillney, mm. hands down. And, you know, th- this is why, you know, when I was putting together the draft list that year with my staff, I said, I want to know two things, how the players rank, but most importantly, I want to know who the best player is. There's all these other players, and then there's the best players. So forget about the rankings. Just give me a list of the best players. And Alex topped every list that year, because prior to that, if we were ranking players and that player was on a ranking list, he would have been at the bottom of a list as unavailable Mm -hmm. or not eligible. And when you you rearrange your thinking, it's interesting how you rearrange your thinking and it changes outcomes. Um, we started thinking about who the best players are, not just where they rank. And I think the best, the best draft selections are come from that philosophy. Really, I mean, I think the year that we picked Pierre Turgeon, um, Pierre was a natural for our team. We we needed a an offensive center. He was French Canadian. It reminded him people of Gilles Parole. And it was almost you know a given then and, and there was never a doubt we're gonna but there was two other players in that draft we didn't take. One was Brendan Shanahan, the other was Joe Sakic. So, you know, who, who knows? Uh, they all had great careers, but balance the all three. There, there was no other words, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of, of of talent and depth in the in the draft pool if you look for it and it doesn't properly identify it.
0: Well, Jerry, I just want to you on the, um, the uh, now we're talking about that line, uh, Federoff, Burray and uh, McGillney. Yeah. Your you version, Buray, your version of the Bouray part coming in. So you obviously were aware of him too, and uh, so you were aware of what Pat was doing and stealing him, and all you guys.
2: <laughs> well, tr- shrewd on Pat for pulling that one off because nobody in the world, including the other general managers, believed that Bouray satisfied the. The conditions, um, which would have made his draft the prior year um, legitimate, and because it was, and as people may not know, it wasn't settled until the night before the draft in Vancouver. Oh. I think it was in Vancouver. I believe it was. But the way we were told that it had been settled and the issue had been settled in favor of Vancouver is somebody slipped a note under our doors in the hotel the night before <laughs> the draft. <laughs> that was how we found out. It's like, oh, by the way, this guy is not. Oh, yeah, this guy is. Buray is not eligible for this year's draft because he's already Vancouver property. That was the. I it was
0: Pat Quinn doing that. Well, it might.
2: <laughs> he might have done it earlier. He might have done it at John Ziegler's door. That's where he did it. <laughs> I'll never know. I'll never know. Uh, you know, the, the the game operated under some curtains of secrecy in those days, not like now. <laughs>
0: Well, Jerry, we've taken so much of your time. We don't want to tie you up. Squid, anything before we let Jerry get back to uh, helping people again?
1: <laughs> no. I Well, I, I will talk to Jerry because I know I got some money coming to me from the U.S. from playing and coaching so many years in the U.S. So we'll get into that at some point uh, when I get a hold of you and uh, find out. Just exactly how much the U.S. government owes me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Happy to help any time I can, Rick. Uh, really pleased to have had you as a player and get to know you as a guy.
1: Well, thank you, Jerry.
0: Okay, well, thanks. listen, now, Jerry, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, been very enlightening. Uh, thanks for all your time, and uh, listen, best going forward.
2: Thanks a lot, Mike, and good luck with the show, guys.